You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So I make it a goal to learn something on every episode of this show. And I've got to tell you, I learned a ton this week, mostly because it's a topic that I didn't know a whole lot about, thyroid health. I mean, I knew the thyroid was very important, obviously. It manufactures the thyroid hormones that regulate our metabolism. And the hormones that that gland produces affect pretty much every cell, tissue, and organ in our body. But I didn't know a whole lot else about it, if I'm honest. So I started doing a little research and I found out the North American Menopause Society calls the thyroid a touchy gland. That's that's actually a quote, touchy gland, because it becomes imbalanced in about one in eight women. And when that happens, you end up with hypothyroidism or an underactive thyroid, which can cause fatigue, forgetfulness, mood swings, weight gain, irregular menstrual cycles, cold intolerance, unchecked. If you don't take care of it, it can lead to high cholesterol, osteoporosis, heart disease, and depression. In fact, it can be mistaken for, if all that didn't sound familiar, menopause. Though hypothyroidism is more common, some women also get hyperthyroidism, where you have too much thyroid hormone, which can also mimic menopause transition with hot flashes and heat intolerance and heart palpitations. It's also something that comes up quite frequently on the feisty menopause and hit play, not pause social media channels. Since women are often diagnosed during menopause, they get these things confused. It's called dual diagnosis, actually. And it's because of the interplay between estrogen and thyroid hormones, which we'll get into on the show. All of this sort of came to my attention because past guest Heidi Armstrong of the Injured Athletes Toolbox shot me an email a few weeks ago. And she said, I noticed many posts in our group about hypothyroidism and about Hashimoto's. And that's an autoimmune condition we'll get into on the show. And that was something I was diagnosed with in November. That's Heidi talking. And she goes on to say, through a group member, I found a dietitian who has taught me how to manage hypothyroidism and empowered me. I have said goodbye to my brain fog, bloating, digestive issues, and blood sugar roller coaster. She's also the owner of a kickboxing gym, a trainer, a huge proponent of lifting heavy stuff, and a no BS, hilarious genius of a dietitian. Her name is Ingrid Anderson. She specializes in women with hypothyroidism and is also a wealth of knowledge about perimenopause and all the hormones and how they interact. Let me tell you, having hypothyroidism on top of perimenopause is a beast. I'd be rocking in a corner back and forth had I not found Ingrid. She is articulate, whip smart, and speaks with clarity, humor, and wisdom. So I did a little research and gave Ingrid a call, and I am so glad I did. This is definitely a bigger issue than I had understood it to be, and Ingrid is indeed whip smart, articulate, and wise. And 60% of people with thyroid disease go undiagnosed. So if bells are ringing as you listen to this episode, go get yourself a complete thyroid panel. And I'll tell you that I was on a ride with a regular training partner of mine, and he was talking about his wife. And I was like, you know what? 
I think she might need a thyroid panel. So there, there's a lot you might find whistles going off with this one. It was really interesting. I'll put a note to Ingrid in the show notes. I'll link her Instagram where you can connect to her via her link tree. Before we get to it, this is my little weekly reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have a private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook channel where you can come in and join the conversation on everything under the sun. And if you want a deep dive on all things menopausal living, we've got the Feisty Menopause membership where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, sponsor discounts. You can learn all about that at feistymenopause.com. You can also join us either live or virtually in our summit this September, be September 24th through the 26th. I'm getting super, super excited about it. We've got such a great guest list. We'll be coming out with more information on that shortly. You can learn about that at feistymenopause.com. If you have ideas for guests, you can hit me up at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. That's my email. And finally, again, I will thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to the moon for all the great ratings and reviews and hearts and stars that you've been sending my way and the direct messages and I could go on, but I cannot begin to tell you how moving it all has been and how thankful I am for you. So enough of me. Let's have a quick word from our generous and awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns. And the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa cycling clothing today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests. 
And their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you it works. I'm super excited that you've joined us. I This is, as we talked about earlier, a topic that I actually don't know a whole lot about, though I have seen it in the ether in my audience and in my family. And, you know, Heidi Armstrong, who was on the show, told me I could talk about this. You know, she's a client of yours and she's the one that yeah. recommended you because, you know, she described it as sort of a nightmare going through hypothyroidism and perimenopause at the same time. And that we'll definitely get into that. There seems to be a lot of intersection, but I, I think maybe why don't we just dial it all the way back and talk about the thyroid for a second? Because, you know, I read the North American menopause society and it actually called it a quote unquote touchy gland. And I was like, that's funny. So, you know, tell us a little bit about our thyroid, what it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ingrid. I'm a Hashimoto's dietitian. Um, so the thyroid is a butterfly shaped gland in your neck. So for men, it almost looks like an Adam's apple for women. It's set back a little bit further. Um, and about 20 million Americans are affected with thyroid disease. Um, and one of the things we also know is that 60% of Americans walk around with thyroid disease and don't know it. That's, that's a number that's um, pretty intriguing to me that there's that many people that do not know that they have thyroid disease. And the thing about the thyroid and thyroid hormone is it actually affects every cell tissue and organ in your body, which is probably why it's considered the touchy. What was it? What did you say? It was called the touchy organ. Touchy gland. <laughs> touchy <laughs> gland. It's a touchy like, gland. Well, and we'll get, we'll really dive into that and unpack some of the ways where it is super touchy because when you have a, a hormone that is integral in every cell tissue and organ, then that means there's going to be a lot of, um, feedback loops, right? So we're going to see where the thyroid affects a hormone or a pathway, but then that pathway also affects that hormone. So there's a lot of give and take when it comes to thyroid hormone and thyroid dysfunction. Okay. Yeah. Let's then dive into estrogen because, you know, in our audience, that is obviously a hormone that is doing all kinds of things. You know, maybe it's fluctuating, maybe it's flatlining at this point, but how do thyroid hormones and estrogen hormones intersect, overlap, interact, you know, all of that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and in a couple different ways. So, um, thyroid and estrogen are very interrelated. We know that severe changes in estrogen level can actually trigger thyroid dysfunction. So that's why a lot of women get diagnosed either post-pregnancy or in perimenopause, right? So those are the two main 
uh, times of a woman's life where we really should be getting testing for thyroid dysfunction, just because it really can put a monkey wrench in your entire life. If you're suffering from hypothyroidism and you don't know it. So after pregnancy, perimenopause, when we have those dips in our estrogen, those spikes in estrogen that Mm -hmm. can, that can trigger that dysfunction from happening. Um, so in terms of, you know, how directly estrogen affects our thyroid is one estrogen and thyroid have the same carrier protein. So the higher estrogen you have, the lower thyroid hormone you're going to have, um, which would make you think, Oh, like when I go through menopause, I'm going to have lower estrogen. So I'll have higher thyroid, except for the fact that lower estrogen actually increases, um, or sorry, it suppresses thyroglobulin, which in which thyroglobulin improves or increases our thyroid hormone. So when you have too little estrogen, you actually have suppressed thyroid function. So you need a very balanced estrogen in order to have balanced thyroid function. Does that make sense? It does. And I know these things interplay in very complicated ways. So, I mean, I think just breaking it down right there is, is good. And then this sort of leads me to wonder about hormone therapy, but I'll let you continue, you know, with, with that to, Go ahead. Yeah. 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 So, so essentially the long and the short of it is when you have, you know, sporadic um, increases and decreases of estrogen, that's going to potentially call trigger Hashimoto's or Graves disease. That's very, very common. So Graves is the hyperthyroid version Mm -hmm. of Hashimoto's where Hashimoto's is the hypothyroid version. Um, And when when you have high estrogen that causes low thyroid hormone, but when you have low estrogen, that also causes low thyroid hormone. That's kind of the long and the short of it. It's too much estrogen. No good. Too little estrogen. No good for the thyroid. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. So that leads me to, you know, people like our friend Heidi Armstrong, you know, who have what I saw in the literature called, you know, a quote unquote dual diagnosis where they have hypothyroidism and they're going through menopause transition, and the symptoms are so wide ranging, it's hard to tell what is what. So, you know, what is, is there, are there any differentials there in the symptoms that, you know, women might be like, okay, this isn't just my menopause transition. Uh This seems like a hot thyroid thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's talk a little bit about those symptoms that overlap just so that the audience can kind of be like, oh yeah, that's me. That feels, you know, that feels great. Um, so things like, um, unexplained weight gain, right. We always just attribute that to menopause at that, you know, stage of life. We're always just like, oh, I'm gaining weight. Cause I'm going through menopause. Well, not necessarily. Right. Um, so there's that there's, um, fatigue. So chronic fatigue where you're always feeling tired. Um, that's, that's a dual symptom, uh, brain fog. So, um, horrific brain fog where you can't really function that well, you can't think straight, you have memory issues. That's both hypothyroid and, uh, perimenopause and menopause, um, irregular periods, right? So that's also something that comes up where maybe you're actually not in perimenopause. Maybe you have Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism. Um, so those are all, um, those are all some mood swings too. Can't, can't leave out the mood swings. <laughs> that's also, um, 
hypothyroidism and menopause at the same time. So, and the cool thing is, well, I guess it's not that cool, but, but the truth of the matter is, is when you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, it can exacerbate those menopausal symptoms, right? So if you have hypothyroidism and menopause, and you don't know that you have hypothyroidism, so you're not medicated, you're not putting the nutrition and lifestyle things in order. It can really make those menopause symptoms so much worse, but the good news is when you manage those symptoms on the thyroid end, it relieves those symptoms on the menopause end. Um, so that's always a nice little motivation, right. To kind of get those labs checked and make sure that, you know, you, you know, what's happening, whether it's, you know, hypothyroid menopause or both at the same time. Right. And to be clear, you will still, or could still have menopause symptoms, even if your thyroids are fine. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. absolutely. And let's, and let's rewind a bit. And, you know, you've mentioned Hashimoto's uh, a, a few times. What is the difference? I know Hashimoto's is, you know, a, an autoimmune condition with thyroid, but what's the difference between low thyroid symptom wise and Hashimoto's? So symptom wise, they're, they they present the same way. Um, so they present the exact same way. So the difference is Hashimoto's is it, like you said, is an autoimmune disease. So essentially you have antibodies that attack your thyroid. So they're called autoantibodies. Um, and the issue with this is the longer you let those autoantibodies bodies kind of run rampant, the more damage you have to your thyroid and that's going to cause those hypothyroid symptoms. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And low thyroid is just that, like you're just, your thyroid is producing. Low, yep. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And if you want, we can get into a little bit what those hormones look like, um, you know, what testing you should get and, you know, kind of, that was going to be my next question, you know, cause we've talked about like you know, this woman may not be in perimenopause or it may not all be attributed to perimenopause. So what kind of testing should she be getting? Yeah. Yeah. And this is, um, as, as we, I talked to Heidi a little bit before this podcast and, and what we were talking about was like, this is ammunition, right? Because a lot of times doctors don't want to run these lab work, this lab work, and they don't want to run the testing. And in our medical community, women tend to get dismissed quite a lot. Um, and that happens so much with hypothyroid and Hashimoto's. And so often what you'll see is you'll ask the doctor to test your thyroid and they'll just test a TSH, which is the okay. thyroid stimulating hormone. So this is a, uh, this is a, um, a hormone that comes from your pituitary gland. So this comes from your brain and it signals to your thyroid to make more thyroid hormone. So it's not even a test that shows how much thyroid hormone you have in your body. It's literally a signal, right? Okay. <laughs> so they're yeah. testing the signal. They're not actually testing the active thyroid hormone. They're not testing um, the inactive thyroid hormone. They're not really testing how your body's receiving that thyroid hormone. And they're certainly not testing antibodies to see if this is an autoimmune condition or to see if this is just regular hypothyroidism, which generally comes either from a lack of iodine, which we'll get into later or some genetic components. Um, so the labs you really want to be asking your doctor for is a TSH, a free T3, which is your active thyroid hormone, your free T4, which is your inactive thyroid hormone, mm -hmm. a TPO level, which is 
one of your thyroid antibodies, and then you want an antithyroglobulin um, antibody test as well. So all of that together is going to give you a much better picture. Um, some functional doctors also will get a reverse T3, but most medical doctors find that it's too expensive and they don't want to deal with it. But for me, for my purposes, what I like to see is at least the free T3 and the free T4 and the TSH and the antibodies together that, that paints a really helpful picture. If, if a woman was going in and, and asking for this next level of testing, would she need to ask for all those specifically, or are they part of a panel advanced panel that would just come automatically? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm picturing women like writing this all down, which is great. You should, I mean, if you, if you want to go, you should write it down, but I'm, yeah. I am curious, like how much advocacy you need to do for yourself to get these tests or, or if, or if once you get past that first hump, you know, and get like the more specific tests, if they, if that tends to be standard. You ask for your specific testing. They are not going to go ahead and do it for you unless you have an, a really amazing doctor. And for anyone that's like scribbling all these notes down, just message me on Instagram and I will send you the labs and also the functional ranges for the labs because that's another <laughs> picture. So I'm happy. Do you have that anywhere in your own resources? Because I'm going to put your resources in the show notes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, they are on my Instagram. They're on my. They should be on my website. But yeah, okay. if anyone has any questions, they can totally just message me and I'm happy to share that information with them. Cause again, this is ammunition for your own health, right? And doctors are not going to just run these labs. Um, if you ask for a full thyroid panel, they might, but okay. it's, it's better to have exactly what you want out of those labs and ask for specifically what you want. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And then conceivably you're working with a doctor who's going to work with you based yes. on what, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I always tell my clients too, there's nothing wrong with shopping around for a doctor. Right. And it's 100%. so important. It's so important to have a doctor that's going to listen to you, listen to your symptoms, because again, like, you know, you can't, the ranges for hypothyroidism and the ranges that they use are so broad that a lot of times you will have symptoms of hypothyroid, even if your labs are slightly offbeat, right? Everyone's a little bit different. So you need a doctor that's really going to look at the full picture, look at where, you know, look at what your symptoms are, look at the labs together, listen to how you're feeling, and then make that, make that call with you. Find a doctor who listens to you. We, we have, uh, <laughs> yeah. that comes up again and again on the show, but it is, it is so important. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, have- I went through, yeah. Like I also went through this myself. Right. So like I have Hashimoto's, mm-hmm. I went through several endocrinologists before I found one that I ended up working with professionally as well, but she's, she's great. Like, you know, but I have to say even her, sometimes I have to be like, no, I really want a free T3. I promise you, I really want this lab, you know? <laughs> so it's really important to just know what you want and ask for it too. Right. So now that we've established that, let's talk about what to do. You know, like let's yeah. talk about some of the treatments. I mean, I know many women in our audience, you know, I've heard from them. I see them on the socials and in the membership uh, are on Synthroid or, or a thyroid medicine, you know, they're, they're taking something. Is that the yeah. first line of um, treatment? So it depends on where you're at and depends on where your labs are at, right? So if you have a TSH of 20 or 30, you want to hop on that real fast with medication because 
um, you know, that not to scare anyone, but that can definitely lead to a heart attack, right? So we want to hop on those super high numbers. Um, But if you're hovering towards, you know, the high end of normal, some people choose to take a more natural route. Um, There's nothing wrong with medication. Your body needs thyroid hormone one way or the other. So, um, you know, like I was saying before, like your thyroid hormone affects every cell tissue and organ in your body. So if you have inadequate thyroid hormone, you want to make sure you're optimizing that, um, through medication, if your thyroid levels are bad enough or optimizing the pathways in your body in order to, um, optimize that thyroid function in general. Um, one thing we didn't talk about when we were talking about labs, is that your thyroid actually produces mostly inactive thyroid hormone. And it's up to your liver and your gut and your kidneys to convert that inactive thyroid hormone to active thyroid hormone. So it's really important that when your labs are a little off or you're feeling a little bit off that you put nutrition and lifestyle interventions into place so that you can optimize your liver function. You can optimize your gut health. You can optimize your kidney health. So then you can optimize again, your thyroid health. Gotcha. Which, which does segue yeah. into, because I know from going through your TikTok and your Instagram that you are, <laughs> you know, I, the TikTok is great. That will be in the show notes. I really appreciate all, you know, it's so digestible that it, that I love that, you know, you can go and find like, yeah. I resisted TikTok for so long. I was like, <laughs> I am way too old for this. <laughs> and now I like, love it. I get most of my clients actually through TikTok. And I find that it's such a fun way to share these snippets of information that is so helpful for people. So yeah, no, and it's really, it's very easy to wrap your head around. Like, it's just, I, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so the, most of your TikTok is on nutrition and uh, exercise, right? It's on, on lifestyle kind of things. Uh, and I want to dive into one of the big ones that we see all the time with this audience is that the first thing that they do, like you mentioned, one of the biggest changes that women face when their sex hormones start to change is the body composition changes. Right. And then the first thing that they do is what diet, you know, we get, we, we see an awful lot of that and it's uh, not productive for this audience for many reasons, but if there's a thyroid issue, I have seen through your, your information and other that that's really bad, right? Can you talk a little bit about intermittent fasting, which is so hot right now, as well as just dieting in general, when you're talking about a a hypothyroid situation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Intermittent fasting is definitely something that comes up a lot. um, I'm sure in your circle, my circle as well. one of those diets that, you know, it's, a, it's the next magic bullet, right? There was keto. Now there's IF there's, and, and, you know, I don't want to, um, uh, misrepresent this because yes, the gut does need some rest, right. Mm-hmm. But that's called mm-hmm. sleeping. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's called okay. sleeping. As long as you're not eating all night long, that is enough rest for your gut to recover and repair. Um, so when we talk about IF and when we look at the literature, um, with intermittent fasting, we know a couple things. We know that one, most of the literature is based on men, right. And men have very different hormones women. And two, I don't think there's one study that looks at intermittent fasting and thyroid disorder. Um, but what we know is long-term fasting in general for women with Hashimoto's can actually raise cortisol levels and cortisol is our stress hormone. 
Um, calorie restriction in general. So severe calorie restriction can also do the same thing. So mm-hmm. long-term fasting, calorie restriction, um, they both increase that stress hormone cortisol. And that stress- audience specifically too, I can tell you that we have research for um, menopausal transition women and same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more, but you know, certain types of exercise can also increase cortisol. So when you just have all of these things that are in place, increasing that cortisol level, it's really important that you do the things that you can do to decrease the cortisol level. One of those things being eating consistent meals throughout the day, right? So eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, if you're a snack person, it's okay to eat two snacks, but, um, back to intermittent fasting and, you know, cortisol and thyroid, there's a couple things that happen. So first of all, you have suppressed th- your, your thyroid actually, um, the function actually suppresses with long-term function. So in general, or sorry, with long-term fasting. So right your thyroid directly will compensate for the stress and decrease its function. Um, so that's, that's number one, two, we find increased leptin resistance. So leptin is our hunger hormone. It's also our fat regulating hormone. So we see increased leptin resistance with intermittent fasting. And I've actually seen clients come through with this. So this is not something that's just hearsay. I've seen it where clients have done intermittent fasting. They come to me, they, you know, go to their doctor, they get their levels checked and they have, you know, leptin resistance and also generally insulin resistance will come out of this as well. So two things that impact your fat storage and regulation with a suppressed thyroid function to boot. And, you know, before we started, um, the, the show, we were talking about how your DNA also has to utilize that active T3. So one of the things that we know is with increased cortisol, even if you have normal lab ranges, so your T4 is normal, your T3 is normal, your TSH is normal. If your DNA can't use that active thyroid hormone, then you still have symptoms. So increased Mm -hmm. cortisol blocks that, that ability for your DNA to use that active T3. So there's a lot that's going on here. That is just a bad, it's a, it's a bad day, right? (laughs) (laughs) It does not work that. Um, and you know, you're going to be working really hard. You're going to be fasting. You're going to be stressed out over your eating window. Um, I don't like intermittent fasting just because I feel like for women, it sets them up for binge eating and for not getting their protein in, in consistent ways. Um, but you know, in terms of, you know, weight loss, it might work for some people for the short term, but once you bring this into a long-term picture, it's going to start causing some problems. Right. Right. Excellent. Excellent points. We'll get right back to my interview in a minute, but first I want to share a bit of exciting news. We are having a feisty menopause summit. It is no secret to any of you listening that menopause is having a moment and we active menopausal women are having our moment right now. And well, Feisty Menopause is taking that moment and creating a movement for active, performance-minded women who are not willing to stop just because their periods are. The summit will be an interactive, immersive online learning experience taking place September 24th through the 26th. We're going to feature two days of menopause performance content from top experts in their fields, including training, nutrition, symptom management, mindset, and much more. 
I already have nearly two dozen experts lined up, including Dr. Stacey Sims, Amanda Thebe, Casey Duke, and many more that I cannot wait to share with you. You can get your tickets at feistymenopause.com. Just hit the tab in the upper right-hand corner for the Menopause Summit, and I'll see you there. Okay, let's get right back to that interview. Um, let's talk, let's go right into gluten. I mean, we're going to talk about all kinds of other things next, but I think, yeah, let's, let's dive straight into gluten because, you know, gluten-free definitely was one of those things that had that moment, you know, where it was everywhere in the water, it was everywhere in the ether and perhaps was exaggerated to some extent, but, um, you know, there is certainly research supporting that it can help with thyroid disorders. So can you talk about that connection? Absolutely. So, and you know, this is something I'm very clear with my clients about is more research has to be done, right? Right, Because there's so many different um, situations with women with Hashimoto's ages, you know, there's so many different factors that play into this, um, uh, coexisting autoimmune disorders. Um, but what the literature is pointing towards is there's two main mechanisms that help, um, that, that support removing gluten from your diet. If you have Hashimoto's hypothyroid, um, and this is not the same for regular hypothyroid, right? This is more the autoimmune piece here. Okay. Okay. So, Yeah. So a couple different things. So with Hashimoto's, we tend to see something called atypical celiac, which is adult onset celiac disease. Um, autoimmune diseases tend to run in pairs. Celiac disease is often not diagnosed when you are an adult because it's a child's disease, right? Most of the time you see it in like failure to thrive and little kids and they're not getting weight. But with women with hypothyroidism, they tend to also develop um, atypical celiac, but there's not the weight loss component because you have hypothyroidism. So it's a really good idea to also get tested for celiac when you have the Hashimoto's diagnosis. So that's one thing. Um, The second part is there's something called um, non-celiac wheat sensitivity. So in these two groups, what we find is when you eat gluten, you are going to have increased antibodies. So you're going to have increased attack on your thyroid. Um, There's a theory called molecular mimicry where the gluten molecule, really the gliadin molecule, which is a protein within the gluten mimics that thyroid tissue. And so when you eat gluten and there's gliadin in your body, your body is going to be on the attack and it's not only going to attack the gliadin, but it's also going to attack your thyroid tissue. So that, that is a big reason. Um, in general, Hashimoto's and hypothyroid, not, not just hypothyroid, but Hashimoto's hypothyroid clients. What I found in my clients is about nine out of 10 people have symptom relief within a couple of weeks after going gluten-free, which I think is really powerful, right? Of course it's anecdotal, it's not empirical evidence, but just seeing that going from brain fog, fatigue, you know, feeling like garbage to feeling like a a human again, is is really, really powerful. Um, The second thing that I wanted to talk about in uh, relation to gluten is there are in the gluten sensitive crowd, gluten regulates a protein called zonulin. 
which actually regulates the tight junctions of our intestines. So I'm sure you've heard the term leaky gut kind yeah. of flying around. Well, this yeah. kind of interplays into that. So gl gluten can trigger increased zonulin, which then opens up the tight junctions of our intestines. And in and that allows particles to pass through that gut that wouldn't normally pass through that gut. So a lot of times you'll see with women with Hashimoto's increased food sensitivities, high levels mm -hmm. of inflammation, um, all of that. And that is, that's the connection there is gluten can increase those tight junctions of your gut, which leads to those, you know, all of those, uh, that cascade effect. To happen. Right, right. Yeah. So that that answers pretty much all the questions I had on gluten. I just want to, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. which is great. Thank you. But before we yeah. before we sort of, you know, pivot to the next to yeah. the next thing, I want to I want to be abundantly clear that, yeah. you know, you you made it clear that this was a Hashimoto's specific um, effect. So yeah. women who are who are low thyroid in general, this may or may not be an issue for them. Exactly. Generally women with hypothyroid, well, first of all, most women with hypothyroid generally have Hashimoto's these days. So a high, high amount of people with hypothyroid, they just haven't been tested. Those antibodies haven't been tested. So if you have hypothyroidism and you haven't been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, you should really go to your doctor and be like, Hey, can you check my antibodies? So I actually have a full picture of what's happening in my body. That's really important. Um, but yeah, with hypothyroidism, it's, it's a different, it's a different gotcha. situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do want to, I think that's a really excellent point at a very high level bike racer that, that I know, and, and some others might know Ellen Noble, young Olympic level Red Bull athlete. And it took quite a while for her to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's. She had yeah. no idea what was wrong with her. And, you know, without this kind of advocacy, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that's the reality of the situation is women are not being diagnosed until probably decades after suffering. Right. And we all just think it's like, oh, like I'm a mom, so I'm tired because I have kids or I'm an athlete. So I'm tired. Right. Or, you know, we dismiss ourselves and then the right. medical community continues to dismiss us even past the point of us being like, Hey, I actually think I have a problem here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, I think this is not normal. Um, but you know, I think that it's so super important to know how to advocate for yourself when it comes to all of this, because it's still something it's, it's a little better now, but it's really, um, difficult to get your doctors to run those labs and get that diagnosis. Um, I do want to say too, that just in relation to gluten there, you know, there are studies that indicate that going gluten-free can decrease your, um, thyroid antibodies quite a lot. I've had clients that have reduced their thyroid antibodies by 80% in three months from taking gluten out of their diet. So, um, you know, I think that it is worth experimenting with. And I think that even though the science needs to be confirmed, there needs to be more, more research, there needs to be better studies. Um, but at this point, from what we know, it's worth going off gluten for a couple months and seeing how you feel. Um, and again, like I have some, there are always outliers, right? There are always people that kind of are exceptions to the rules. I have people that, you know, actually I have one person <laughs> out of all the people that I've ever worked with, one person actually does totally fine with, with gluten, but the rest of like the rest of my clients way better without it. Right. 
great. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for, that, for all of that. Let's let's move to some micronutrients, maybe. Sure. You know, I, I know that you've talked about magnesium, selenium, and iron. Um, can you talk a little bit about those nutrients, any others that you find helpful? Yeah. So magnesium, iron, selenium, zinc, vitamin D is a big one. So mm-hmm. do you mind if we start with vitamin D? Because I think that that's it. one... <laughs> Okay. So, and, and studies really show that women that follow this kind of ties into the gluten thing. So women that follow gluten-free diet also have less vitamin D deficiency. So it's so interesting to think about that. Um, I have clients who are outside every single day, they get low, they have low vitamin D. And the reason for that is we have more oxidative. And when I say we, I mean, women with Hashimoto's again, I have it myself. So I just consider myself part of the crowd. Um, we tend to have more oxidative damage. So our vitamin D tends to be low. And this is really important because vitamin D, when you're deficient, you have low energy, your mood is crappy. It's really hard to, you know, it's really hard to function with a low vitamin D level. So this is something else that I would actually add into the group of labs that you check is a vitamin D level. Um, And, you know, even in terms of, you know, cortisol, right, there's a, there's a connection of vitamin D and cortisol levels. So making sure that that level is optimal is really important getting sunlight when you can. Um, So I live in upstate New York, where essentially the sunlight is never perfect for me to get vitamin D. You can stand outside naked (laughs) five months out of the year. So when I was, um, so I was actually diagnosed when I was 17 and I was the lifeguard. So I was out in the sun every single day, hours at a time, still had a low vitamin D. So, um, really important to get guidance in, you know, not only get that lab value, see what it is, and then also get guidance in supplementing and replenishing that vitamin D level. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two, we have, um, magnesium. So magnesium, you can find in, um, dark leafy greens, you can supplement with magnesium. Um, there's a couple different forms of magnesium. So there's the magnesium citrate that is okay to talk about poop on this podcast. Go for it. We okay. had a whole, okay. I had a whole, um, no, yeah. please. You know, we had a uh, microbiome woman on and that's all we talked about. So yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not a dietitian unless I bring up poop once. Right. So, um, magnesium citrate, which, which can stimulate peristalsis and can help you poop essentially. So that's one of the things we find when we're doing, um, you know, electrolyte replacement, sometimes people get like the poops from that. Um, that's why, so there's magnesium citrate and then there's magnesium glycinate, which is a little bit gentler on your intestinal tract and tends to do more with calming of your central nervous system. Um, so it's very interesting if you look at the literature with magnesium, cause it actually, um, suppresses, um, excited neurotransmitters. So ones that will cause damage to your cells and it actually binds to calming receptors. So there is like really cool literature and even like psychology today that will talk about how magnesium can help with some psychological disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, it actually can help, um, improve your thyroid function directly too, because it's part of, part of that pathway of converting that T4 to your T3 and all that. And we find that women with, um, low thyroid hormone tend to be magnesium deficient, um, 
part of the reason for that deficiency is either inadequate diet, or again, if you have leaky gut and you're having diarrhea, you know, you don't, or you don't have the microbiota in your gut to, um, to, to hold on to those, uh, micronutrients. That's a big part of that too. And I was literally just writing about this before we got on for this book I'm working with, with Dr. Sims is that people who do strenuous exercise also lose it and have higher, higher needs for magnesium. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, and you know, just bringing it back to the thyroid stuff too, magnesium can help suppress cortisol. So we were talking about that. So there, there are so many things when it comes to Hashimoto's and cortisol that interrelate. It's very, very interesting. It's very interesting. Right. Um, so what were we, what were we up to next? Iron. Selenium or iron? <laughs> yeah, one of the two. Let's leave selenium later. Cause it's the okay. big one. You know, okay. selenium is like the big, like Hashimoto hypothyroid supplement that everyone loves to like overdo. Um, so <laughs> okay. we'll talk about that too. Um, so with iron, we know that 43% of women with hypothyroid are anemic that's versus the general population, which is about 29%. So a, a large amount of us do are anemic. Um, I know that, uh, one of the things that we talk about is like, you know, how much iron do you need and your iron need, whether you're, um, uh, in menopause versus not in menopause. So you actually need less iron, obviously when you're not menstruating. So you need about 18 milligrams before and about eight milligrams, which is a lot less (laughs) after the fact. Um, but iron is actually critical for TSH production. So when you have low iron, it means you're not going to be producing as much, uh, TSH, Um, which again is a problem because when you go to your doctor and you say, oh, I have hypothyroid symptoms and they check your TSH and it's normal and you're not getting an iron lab done at the same time, or you don't know that you're anemic, you can be having all these symptoms and, and that TSH normal TSH level shows up normal. Um, so that's why it's so important to get that T3 and that T4 and the antibodies at the same time. Um, trying to say, think of what else I wanted to say about this. Um, so the other part of this is low thyroid actually impacts your bone marrow activity too. So if you have like low thyroid that actually promotes anemia. So again, Mm -hmm. like those feedback mechanisms Mm -hmm. that happen and why we, why they call it the touchy gland. (laughs) All these, I love that by the way. Um, because all these, uh, all these, pathways and all these different micronutrients and all these, all these different things can really impact that thyroid and the thyroid impacts those things. So it's very forth with that. Um, so did we want to talk about selenium or iodine next? (laughs) Well, let's talk selenium and then go to iodine because I think iodine is the thing that everybody sort of thinks about when they think of you know, mm-hmm. like, like we have iodized salt. Why do we yeah. have iodized salt? Right. So let's, let's yeah. hit selenium and Brazil nuts and then move on. to Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> selenium and Brazil nuts. You got it. All right. All right. <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, this because selenium is a trace mineral, right? Which means you don't need that much of it. And it means when you have too much of it, too much of a good thing is not a good thing anymore. And, and that's kind of, Yeah. That's kind of the message through this whole thing is like balance is good. 
good. Too much is no good. Too little is, is not good. So, so selenium is the same thing is you need adequate amounts of selenium. Um, most people need about 55 MCGs. We know that selenium can protect the thyroid from oxidative damage, which is why it's, um, they talk about selenium a lot. There's a lot of research about selenium and thyroid. Um, we know that it can decrease antibodies. So there's literature that shows that taking a selenium supplement, or again, those Brazil nuts, right. Um, can decrease those antibodies. And then it's also integral in converting T4 to T3. So again, that inactive thyroid hormone to that active thyroid hormone. And the cool thing here is again, I don't work with women that have hyper thyroid or Graves disease. They only work with Hashi and hypo. Um, but selenium is just as important for those with hyperthyroidism and Graves as it is for Hashimoto's, um, to bring that thyroid back to, um, a euthyroid level. Um, so the take-homes here are don't overdo it because you're going to end up having toxicity from the selenium. So 400 uh, micrograms is the top amount that you should be getting. Uh, when you look at, you know, Brazil nuts, they have such a wide range of selenium. So if you're eating Brazil nuts and taking a supplement at the same time, that's not going to be a good situation. You want to choose one or the other, really. So if you want to stick to your two Brazil nuts a day, by all means, go for it, do that. Um, if you're going to supplement go ahead and do that. And I will say that most of the literature is actually based off of 200 micrograms of selenium versus the 55. So it is quite higher than that, you know, that adequate intake needs, but as long as you're not going above that, you should be okay. Um, and really, you really don't want to hit that 400 microgram level of selenium. Okay. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's wrap up the micros with iodine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Iodine. All right. So back in the day, we did not have iodized salt. We had very low iodine diets because we're in the United States. We didn't have, you know, um, nori, you know, seaweed, we didn't right. have those high iodine foods. Um, so a lot of people develop something called the goiter, which is essentially your thyroid gets inflamed and swollen from the lack of iodine. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and that was the real big push, I think in research too, when it came to thyroid disease and all of that. Um, but then they started iodizing the salt and now it's very, very rare to have it iodine deficiency. So what we see is with women with hypothyroid and Hashimoto's, you certainly want to have enough iodine because iodine is really important in order to get that T3. So, um, in order to even make those thyroid hormones, you need iodine. It's a really crucial component, but too much actually stimulates your autoantibodies. So it can actually stimulate further attack on your thyroid. If you overdo it again, too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. The so same story, different, um, different nutrient. Um, most people need about 150 micrograms of iodine. It is not hard to get that in. If you're putting salt on your food, if you're eating, you know, fish, whatever, like you'll be able to get iodine through your food easily where you wouldn't have to necessarily supplement that. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. And, and you talk about, um, gut health quite a bit, which is obviously important. 
fiber comes into the picture here, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Which comes down to, and don't hate me guys, but eating carbohydrates, <laughs> eating <laughs> carbohydrates is super important for your gut health. If you're not eating carbohydrates, your gut is not getting the prebiotics that it needs to feed that good bacteria in your gut. So you see a lot of people with these uh, low carbohydrate diets. This is one of the worst types of diets that you can do with hypothyroidism and and Hashimoto's um, specifically. Um, We know that those super low carb like keto can actually um, stimulate the quote unquote bad gut bacteria that contributes to IBS as well. So it's really important to make sure that you're eating adequate carbohydrates in your nutrition. That being said, um, women with thyroid disorder also tend to have blood sugar dysregulation, right? So there, because the thyroid integral in glucose metabolism, we tend to develop insulin resistance. That's just one of the things that it's like, you know, part of the whole, like, crap storm, the the thyroid crap storm that happens to us. Right. So it's really important to make sure that you're eating, um, carbohydrates with fiber, right? So whole food carbohydrates, it's really important that you pair your food. So pairing your carbohydrates with a protein or fat to make sure that you're not getting that high spike of blood sugar, making sure that the insulin doesn't rise up, making sure that everything stays super balanced. And again, this kind of plays into the intermittent fasting conversation, making sure that you're eating balanced meals throughout the day. So not just saving all of your calories for one meal, but rather regulating your blood sugar and your insulin by eating those three meals throughout the day. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent points. And then I was reading a bit about soy. So where does soy fit into this picture? This is probably one of the most well-researched yet still so debated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, there was some cross-sectional blind studies that essentially long story short said that if you have a thyroid dysfunction, you want to make sure that you're not eating soy daily, but that eating it once in a while is really not going to make a big impact. Right. Okay. So it has to do with how much you're eating. Um, we know like so, there were some theories that were saying that if you eat too much soy, that's going to cause hypothyroidism. But we know that as long as your iodine levels are within normal range, that's not necessarily going to happen. Same kind of deal with goitrogenic vegetables, right? Cause soy is a, a goitrogenic food. Um, as long as your iodine levels are normal, it's not going to impact you as long as you already have a thyroid condition. If you have a thyroid condition, you want to not eat it every day, but once in a while is totally fine. So if you want to go have sushi and there's tamari at the table, I'm saying tamari, cause I'm assuming you're going to go gluten-free after this conversation, <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, it's okay to do that once in a while. It's not going to impact your body. Like it's not one of those things where you eat it and bam, you have a, a thyroid disorder, right? So it's more about the volume of soy. And that's a kind of my interpretation of all of this too, based on all of the literature, mm-hmm. it's still being researched. Again, it is one of the most thoroughly researched parts of all of this. And they still don't really have a conclusive answer in terms of impact. Um, there was this, uh, study again on menopausal women actually specifically, and they looked at the intake and it, you know, 
the vegetarian diet, menopausal women eating soy as their main source of protein, it did not cause um, elevated TSH or hypothyroidism or anything like that. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of my take on the whole soy thing with my clients. I take it as a base by base situation just because some people are very sensitive to inflammation. So if you're sensitive to inflammation and you're eating more processed soy, that can be an issue. Um, but yeah, for the general population, it's not a problem for women with, you know, thyroid disorder, you might just want to eat it with caution. Right. Excellent. And that's it. That's pretty much what everything I read when I was doing some background, it was exactly that message, like eh, moderation, you're probably fine. You know, so, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, and we live in America, right? So yeah. getting rid of- We don't like moderation. Oh, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> well, we don't like moderation at all. And all right. two, getting rid of soy is near impossible. And for me, I think it it's more anxiety provoking to ask my clients to remove soy a hundred percent, which again contributes to that cortisol level and that, you know, the stress, which can, we know that has a direct impact over the thyroid where soy is such a gray area and such a wishy-washy place that it's like, decrease it. If that's your main source of protein and let's correct right. that a little bit, because now we have all of these, like, even if you're, you're not a meat eater, we now have all of these protein sources, you know, pea proteins and all of that, that, right. you know, are right. perfectly acceptable to supplement, um, that, you know, maybe won't cause a long-term effect. So that's kind of my take on it. Cool. 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 So then let's wrap up with, uh, you alluded to it earlier, and I think it's super important because we also talk about this in our community when specifically talking inflammation and cortisol, we like to lift heavy in our little community, you know, we're about resistance training and less about, you know, sort of like a lot of the no man's land cardio. I mean, we have plenty of triathletes and marathon runners and people that need to do endurance exercise, but let's talk about cortisol, thyroid and exercise and how those things interplay. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of lifting heavy shit, right? You're speaking our language. Big big fan of it. Um, Definitely. You know, that's, that's my jam. Um, And what I put out to my clients as the ideal, right? But then again, we have to also look at, well, are you going for a run? Because this is how you release your stress. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's more than just, you know, running increases your cortisol. So don't do it. Right. It's right. about, okay. So, so let's look at this from a full human picture because we're humans. We're not yeah. like robots that can just do the and, ideal thing. Right. And I don't want to tell you, cause I do, I did a five hour bike ride this weekend. Like I'm not giving up my long rides. You know, I'm just like that, that gives me joy. That's my part. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, if something gives you joy, you need to accept that and embrace it and be okay with it. And there might need to be some adjustments. Like if you have been, um, if you have been undiagnosed with Hashimoto's or hypothyroid for decades and decades, your adrenals, because your adrenals also play into it. We didn't really talk about that too much, but your adrenals play a huge part in your thyroid function. So if you have stressed out adrenals, your cortisol levels through the roof, you're riding your bike five hours a day, six days a week, because no, either you gained, <laughs> because, you know, but some people get like addicted to that cardio because they think it's going to help them lose weight or yeah. they just want to get that mental relief. Um, because for what, you know, for whatever reason it's going yeah. on in your life, you know, we might have to dial that back and adjust. Um, 
But yeah, so we know that that endurance cardio is obviously going to raise that cortisol and suppress that thyroid function. So ideally for women with Hashimoto's hypothyroid, that would not be your main source of activity Mm -hmm. with my clients who are, um, for lack of a better word, addicted to those, those long rides or those long runs, or it's it's something that they're competitive with, right? Because I work with some competitive athletes too, endurance athletes, sometimes it's a non-negotiable and that's okay. Because if you lay the groundwork and you do all of the foundational work, you balance your blood sugar, you implement some stress management techniques, you work on your gut health, your gut health Mm -hmm. is good. Your stress management is good. Your blood sugar is good. You know, we supplement, make sure that all of those micronutrients that support your thyroid are good. Then you know what, those those long runs are going to have less of an impact on your overall health picture than they would otherwise. So it's about, you know, recognizing what your non-negotiables are in the process too, because again, that bike ride brings you joy. Why would you not do it? You know? Um, but in terms of like an ideal situation, of course, like, you know, strength training is going to be the most bang for your buck. It's going to boost your metabolism. It's going to help you stay stronger. It's going to, um, you know, allow your body to exercise without boosting that cortisol level, which is going to help you have your thyroid stay healthier for longer. So, yeah. Yeah. So talk a bit more about how strength training relates to cortisol. Yep. So strength training doesn't in, it doesn't raise your cortisol in the same way Mm -hmm. that endurance training does. So you can get in a 30 minute strength training program, 45 minute strength training program. You're not elevating your heart rate as much. You're not putting as much stress on your body, um, depending on how much you're lifting for your body. Right. Sometimes you can really, (laughs) as the bros say, fry your CNS with that, (laughs) um, you know, depending on recovery and nutrition and, you know, all of those things, it's not going to raise your cortisol in the same way that, you know, running 13 miles is going to. Right. 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 That makes, that makes perfect sense. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think that this audience, um, I feel like this has been a very thorough uh, discussion of the topic, but is there anything that you had thought of that we haven't discovered, discussed? Um, I, you know, the one thing I would just say to everyone is just use this conversation as ammunition. And if you feel like, you know, you're not getting the testing that you need, go find a different doctor, because this can be the difference between living your life to the fullest. And, you know, as you guys say, stay feisty, you know, it's your, it's, it's your opportunity to get back to being feisty, right. Getting your, getting everything back in order so that you can feel good and, and live your life. And that's really why I do what I do is because I feel like there's too many people in the Hashimoto space that use it to promote a victim mentality. And I'm here to tell you that you don't need to feel like crap for the rest of your life and that you can feel better and you can start to do the things that you like to do again. Well, that's our show. We'll be taking a little summer break next week. So we'll put up one of our earlier shows for your enjoyment. Then we'll be back the following week with Libby Sheldon, who I met mountain bike racing in 2013. Libby got second place overall in the women's field at the very challenging Transylvania mountain bike epic stage race this past May at age 55. She was actually leading until the last day. 
I loved this story because it's all about setting your sights high and working to optimize your performance, like we always say, no matter what your hormones are doing. Libby is also a real woman with a challenging job and four kids just out there getting it done. So super inspirational one on tap for my return. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.